Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. It's David Cox. Oh, it's too early for that kind of noise. Uh, No, I'm Josh Matheson. So this week we are looking at chapter 11 of The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Last week ended on a kind of cliffhanger. We have John Cavendish in custody. The Scotland Yard men have finally made their move and have arrested John. Which is well slightly worrying because none of us have him as the murderer, but also yeah. a little bit of a confidence booster because with a, with all these Poirot novels, Poirot has to be the person to solve the crime, not Scotland Yard. They've not been made out to be like the, the, the most uh, savvy individuals, have they, so far? Well, also, it'd be pretty anticlimactic, really, if you've set up this person as this amazing detective and then Scotland Yard just does the job. Like, what's, what's and then he'd what be like, well, what was the point in following this guy the whole time? Because <laughs> he didn't add anything <laughs> to the investigation at all. <laughs> the first and last Hercule Poirot novel. <laughs> <laughs> he he's arrogantly irrelevant. goes around. And he's actually <laughs> completely making mistakes left, right, left. Yeah. The redundant Hercule Poirot. (laughs) (laughs) Last week, we also found out that Dr. Bowerstein has also been arrested, but not for the reasons that Hastings thought he was arrested for. He was arrested for espionage. So I think that's pretty much the end of Dr. Bowerstein. I don't think we're going to see him again in the rest of the novel. I think he's been carted off to some kind of war prison. Maybe he'll be one of those to go to the Tower of London. Yeah, for traitor. (laughs) Some lots like yeah. That would be cool. It's like a little epilogue chapter. Where it's like, Dr. Bowerstein was reconsidering his life choices as he hanged in the yeah. Tower of London. <laughs> no, they just um, they sat, they sat them on a chair, blindfolded them and shot them, actually. Oh, oh okay. lovely. That's less, okay. um, I mean, less time fact, to contemplate, really. I don't it? often get opportunities to show my London knowledge prowess in the yeah, podcast. You've got to get it in when you can. That's it. Oh, dear. I mean, could be worse. Anne Boleyn had it worse at the Tower, I think. I exactly. Think she wasn't even a spy. Yeah, well, exactly. She was just queen. And then we also had a slight omission by Mary Cavendish that she is not happy in her marriage and she is leaving John. The first moment she has, she is out of styles and she wants to be free. Now, I was actually thinking about it this week. We were talking about, oh, could she then not be a suspect? Because if she's leaving, then there's no thing with the inheritance. My only thing this week, I was like, oh, maybe it's the case, though, that she's done it and framed John because mm-hmm. it's kind of easier to walk away with all the money and get your life of freedom and restart your life if your husband's dead. <laughs> Pyro will get a postcard or something from, like, Belize. Yeah. And that's, like, the ending of it, if it was like yeah. a film. She's living it's, it up it's in like her, like a pina colada. The other big reveal, which Poirot actually let us in on this time, was that he found Lawrence's fingerprints on a bottle of strychnine in Cynthia's dispensary. Lawrence has been going through a poison cupboard, which he was not allowed to go through and doing it on the sly, which is slightly suspect as well. We've got all to play for. I'm, I'm very intrigued to see in this chapter if... We get to see the evidence now against John. Do you know what I mean? I want to see, like, okay, they've arrested him. Why have they arrested him? Like, what, a, what yeah, was their logic? Be some ground for it, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I think we should jump in. We're going courtroom drama with this one. Scotland Yard are taking plaintiff to court. This is what I want. People's court. 
Willie Hang. Da, da, da. <laughs> who's, who's Willie Hang? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Hang, take to the stand. <laughs> That's a really unfortunate name. He's a wisecrack uh, defense attorney. Uh, yeah. <laughs> attorney at law, Willie Hang. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 11 The Case for the Prosecution. The trial of John Cavendish for the murder of his stepmother took place two months later. Of the intervening weeks, I will say little, but my admiration and sympathy went out unfeignedly to Mary Cavendish. She ranged herself passionately on her husband's side, scorning the mere idea of his guilt, and fought for him tooth and nail. I expressed my admiration to Poirot, and he nodded thoughtfully. Yes, she is of those women who show at their best in adversity. Hmm? It brings out all that is sweetest and truest in them. Her pride and her jealousy of... Jealousy? I queried. Yes. Have you not realized that she is an unusually jealous woman? As I was saying, her pride and jealousy have been laid aside. Huh? She thinks of nothing but her husband and the terrible fate that is hanging over him. He spoke very feelingly, and I looked at him earnestly, remembering that last afternoon, when he had been deliberating whether or not to speak. With his tenderness for a woman's happiness, I felt glad that the decision had been taken out of his hands. Even now, I said, I can hardly believe it. You see, up to the very last minute, I thought it was Lawrence. Poirot grinned. I know you did. But John, my old friend John, every murderer is probably somebody's old friend, hmm? observed Poirot philosophically. You cannot mix up sentiment and reason. I must say, I think you might have given me a hint. Perhaps, mon ami, I did not do so just because he was your old friend. So is Poirot kind of corroborating that he thinks it's John as well here then? He seems uh, completely unsurprised by it. And uh... Now, I, dis- I disagree with Poirot because I know that we, you know, people you know you don't know what they're capable of. But there's one thing for that and then one thing to be capable of murdering your, your own mother. That's quite a big step and to be willing to do that requires some sort of problem up in the old noggin. And mm. I reckon you'd see, like, you know, you might see him stomping a wood lice or something or poisoning mice for fun or for their money. So I don't know. I feel like there'll be some sort of indicator. I also think there's a big difference between a murder of passion in the moment. This has been orchestrated and very finely premeditated to the point where somebody is laying false traps for other people to get away with it. Like, this is a whole nother level of pantomime murder, not just, yeah. oh, they got me really angry and I had a hammer in my hand. It's not a, oh, crap, what have I done murder? This is a, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get away with it and I'm going to pin it on this person. Like, that's a well, whole nother yeah. level of you maniacal. You planned it as carefully as Hercule Poirot goes through clues because while he seems to be able to solve it, it's not. he's not exactly doing it with ease. I was rather disconcerted by this remembering how I had busily passed on to John what I believed to be Poirot's views concerning Bowerstein. He, 
by the way, had been acquitted of the charge brought against him. Nevertheless, although he had been too clever for them this time, and the charge of espionage could not be brought home to him, his wings were pretty well clipped for the future. Oh, so there you go. Bowerstein got off. He's got off scot-free. I asked Poirot whether he thought John would be condemned. To my intense surprise, he replied that on the contrary, he was extremely likely to be acquitted. But Poirot, I protested, No, my friend, have I not said to you all along that I have no proofs? Hmm? It is one thing to know that a man is guilty. It is quite another matter to prove him so. Hmm. And in this case, there is terribly little evidence. That is the old trouble. I, Hercule Poirot, know, but I lack the last link in my chain. And unless I can find that missing link... He shook his head gravely. Do people in this time actually talk like that? Where they're like, rather than just saying, I know, but I like the like, do they always refer to themselves like, I, Hercule Poirot? <laughs> it seems to be like, it's not very realistic, is it? Like her, her way of writing dialogue isn't very realistic. I mean, we kind of found that with the whole John Mary scene in the garden, where it was, yeah, like it was very on the nose and it was like it was TV no novella subject. in its style. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was very much like people just say what they mean. But it's like she's trying to create some kind of drama here by him going, I, Hercule Poirot, or, or when Evie was like, I am on the side of justice. Like, it's all just very, like, proclamatory, well, isn't it? I'm trying, <laughs> of, I'm trying to think of situations where you might, I feel like you might, in a sense of, if you, like, to give extra, because like, it's hard to give emphasis to the, to the pronoun, to be like, I, me, you know, it's hard to kind of give that, if you, if you really want to, put the emphasis on you i might say i josh went to this shop or whatever it might yeah be. so i feel like sometimes you do i can't think of any no? time that i wouldn't ever done that i i can think of one time where i did that and that was when i said my wedding vows i was, yeah, that's, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the only but time that's I've ever said. thing and it has to be exactly it clarified <laughs> It, it didn't need witness because he's just like speculating about a murder it's maybe people. he learned english from like a legal book or something books. yeah yeah from wedding vows. <laughs> instead, instead of saying, see you next time, he says, till death do us part. Everyone's like, <laughs> what? I'm seeing you tomorrow. Nah. Till death do us part, I see you. Uh. When did you first suspect John Cavendish? I asked after a minute or two. Did you not suspect him at all? No, indeed. Not after that fragment of conversation you overheard between Mrs. Cavendish and her mother-in-law and their subsequent lack of frankness in the inquest, hmm? No. Did you not put two and two together and reflect that if it was not Alfred Inglethorpe who was quarrelling with his wife, and you remember he strenuously denied that at the inquest, it must be either Lawrence or John, hmm? Now, if it was Lawrence, Mary Cavendish's conduct was just as inexplicable. But if, on the other hand, it was John, the whole thing was explained quite naturally. Hmm? So, I cried, a light breaking in upon me, it was John who quarrelled with his mother that afternoon. Exactly. And you've known this all along? Certainly. Hmm? Mrs. Cavendish's behaviour could only be explained that way. And yet, you say he may be acquitted. Poirot shrugged his shoulders. Certainly I do. 
at the police court proceedings. We shall hear the case for the prosecution. And in all probability, his solicitors will advise him to reserve his defense. Hmm? That will be sprung upon us at the trial. And, ah, by the way, I have a word of caution to give you, my friend. I must not appear in the case. What? No. Officially, I have nothing to do with it. Until I have found that last link in my chain, I must remain behind the scenes. Mrs. Cavendish must think I am working for her husband, not against him. Hmm? I say, that's playing it a bit low down, I protested. Not at all. We have to deal with a most clever and unscrupulous man, and we must use any means in our power. Otherwise, he will slip through our fingers. Hmm? That is why I have been careful to remain in the background. All the discoveries have been made by Jap, and Jap will take all the credit. If I am called upon to give evidence at all, he smiled broadly, it will probably be as a witness for the defence. Hmm? I could hardly believe my ears. It is quite en règle, continued Poirot. Strangely enough, I can give evidence that will demolish one contention of the prosecution. Which one? The one that relates to the destruction of the will. John Cavendish did not destroy that will. Poirot was a true prophet. I will not go into the details of the police court proceedings, as it involves many tiresome repetitions. I will merely state boldly that John Cavendish reserved his defence and was duly committed for trial. September found us all in London. Mary took a house in Kensington, Poirot being included in the family party. I myself had been given a job at the war office, so was able to see them continually. As the weeks went by, the state of Poirot's nerves grew worse and worse. That last link he talked about was still lacking. Privately, I hoped it might remain so, but what happiness could there be for Mary if John was not acquitted? On September the 15th, John Cavendish appeared in the dock at the Old Bailey, charged with the willful murder of Emily Agnes Inglethorpe, and pleaded not guilty. Sir Ernest Heavyweather, the famous <laughs> KC, had been engaged to defend him. Let's just stop for a moment and talk about Sir Ernest Heavyweather. I oh, know, that's Is a great rain cloud. He's <laughs> really negative. <laughs> or he's quite stormy. Yeah. It's a great name. I yeah. love we also, name. Could we also talk to... I don't know what a KC is. Oh. Uh, is that not... Um, King Cobra. Like a barrister. King Cobra. It's probably something legal, but I don't know. In the United Kingdom and in some Commonwealth countries, a Queen's Council, post-nominal QC, during the reign of a Queen, or a King's Council... A KC during the reign of a king. Oh, so we know QC because obviously we've got Elizabeth and we've she's been queen the whole time we've been alive. But this was obviously written in the time of a king. So they have KCs instead. Mr. Phillips KC opened the case for the crown. The murder, he said, was a most premeditated and cold-blooded one. 
it was neither more nor less than the deliberate poisoning of a fond and trusting woman by the stepson to whom she had been more than a mother. Ever since his boyhood, she had supported him. He and his wife had lived at Stiles Court in every luxury, surrounded by her care and attention. She had been their kind and generous benefactress. He proposed to call witnesses to show how the prisoner, a profligate and spendthrift, had been at the end of his financial tether, and had also been carrying on an intrigue with a certain Mrs. Rakes, a neighbouring farmer's wife. This having come to his stepmother's ears, she taxed him with it on the afternoon before her death, and a quarrel ensued, part of which was overheard. On the previous day, the prisoner had purchased strychnine at the village chemist's shop, wearing a disguise by means of which he hoped to throw the onus of the crime upon another man, to wit Mrs. Inglethorpe's husband, of whom he had been bitterly jealous. Luckily for Mr. Inglethorpe, he had been able to produce an unimpeachable alibi. On the afternoon of July 17th, continued counsel, immediately after the quarrel with her son, Mrs. Inglethorpe made a new will. This will was found destroyed in the grate of her bedroom the following morning, but evidence had come to light which showed that it had been drawn up in favour of her husband. Deceased had already made a will in his favour before her marriage, but, and Mr. Phillips wagged an expressive forefinger, the prisoner was not aware of that. What had induced the deceased to make a fresh will, with the old one still extant, he could not say. She was an old lady, and might possibly have forgotten the former one, or, this seemed to him more likely, she may have had an idea that it was revoked by her marriage, as there had been some conversation on the subject. Ladies were not always well versed in legal knowledge. She had, about a year before, executed a will in favour of the prisoner. He would call evidence to show that it was the prisoner who ultimately handed his stepmother her coffee on the fatal night. Later in the evening, he had sought admission to her room, on which occasion, no doubt, he found an opportunity of destroying the will, which, as far as he knew, would render the one in his favour valid. The prisoner had been arrested in consequence of the discovery, in his room, by Detective Inspector Jap, a most brilliant officer, of the identical vial of strychnine, which had been sold at the village chemist's to the supposed Mr. Inglethorpe on the day before the murder. It would be for the jury to decide whether or not these damning facts constituted an overwhelming proof of the prisoner's guilt. And, subtly implying that a jury which did not so decide was quite unthinkable, Mr. Phillips sat down and wiped his forehead. Looking over what he's just stated, it's a very good narrative, but there doesn't seem to be very much evidence to support that. Because, I mean, anyone could have put the vial in his room. Just because they mm -hmm. found the vial in his room doesn't mean... And we know that the whoever is the murderer has been quite ballsy in tampering with evidence and stuff after the yeah, murder happened. It, it, it sets up a precedent of not being able to believe a lot of the evidence you have because we, are, we, we know for sure that someone's dressed up as Inglethorpe, mm. which means that the whole... Yeah, you're right, the whole way down the line, you have to... You have to what's scrupulous scrupulate i don't know is that a word <laughs> say scrupulate and i guess it's a word 
like every bit of evidence you go well it could have been planned like even the will in then the great like mm. the, the the whatever that mark was on the floor the green bit of thread could, could be, be planted that, yeah you know? mm. no um, it's true You've definitely got somebody who's at least believes they have thought of every single trip up or or has planted you know, a, a little clues all the way along the way to kind of push the blame away from themselves towards other people in the house. So who knows? Maybe this could be like a second layer. It would, the, the original layer was, oh, we're going to pin it on Alfred. And then layer number two was, we're going to pin it on Alfred, but make it look like John was pinning it on Alfred. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It could be like another la- another layer of like deception. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. I I just feel like there's there's it, they've they've woven a very nice narrative, but they haven't necessarily provided enough evidence to make it like beyond a shadow of a doubt this person did it. Yeah. Hence the reason why Poirot is saying I reckon he's going to get acquitted because I don't think that the jury will accept that as beyond a shadow of a doubt. The first witnesses for the prosecution were mostly those who had been called at the inquest, the medical evidence being taken again first. Sir Ernest Heavyweather, who was famous all over England for the unscrupulous manner in which he bullied witnesses, only asked two questions. (laughs) <laughs> Didn't we have like a bit of a lawyer voice or something? Because the thing is, I would love to have him as like Lionel Hutz or some kind of like ambulance chaser. Oh, kind of thing. Mr. But, Simpson. You but, said he does... the yeah. <laughs> but he does seem to be actually good at his job and known for being like a bully. Who, or he who has been like really, voice? if he's a human rain cloud, just a n- ball of negativity, how would that manifest? If he's heavy weather. I don't know. If he's a ball of negativity, I'm thinking bully and a ball of negativity. I almost want him to be Donald Trump. <laughs> with, a sense of, with a sense of self-entitlement and kind of like narcissism thrown in. I take it, Dr. Berenstein, <laughs> it's strictly as a drug acts quickly. <laughs> it's a yes from me. Visual gag. Yeah. No. Okay. But I'm listening on the tube. Subscribe. <laughs> Said the pauper. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Gonzalez. I got now, but it's an oyster card. I can't afford. <laughs> and that you were unable to account for the delay in this case. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> Is that him? Just drop the mic. <laughs> yeah, that's literally yeah. him. I mean, he wasn't really very bullying, was he? But I suppose he's he's just trying to cast out, isn't he? He's yeah, like, you out. said it was strychnine and it works quickly. Yep. Can you account for how it was delayed? Nope. Well, there you go. Okay. It could not have been him. All you need to do. Yeah. Mr. Mace identified the vial handed him by counsel as that sold by him to Mr. Inglethorpe. Pressed, he admitted that he only knew Mr. Inglethorpe by sight. He had never spoken to him. The witness was not cross-examined. Alfred Inglethorpe was called and denied having purchased the poison. He also denied having quarrelled with his wife. Various witnesses testified to the accuracy of these statements. The gardener's evidence as to the witnessing of the will was taken, and then Dorcas was called. Dorcas 
faithful to her younger gentlemen, denied strenuously that it could have been John's voice she heard, and resolutely declared, in the teeth of everything, that it was Mr. Inglethorpe who had been in the boudoir with her mistress. A rather wistful smile passed across the face of the prisoner in the dock. He knew only too well how useless her gallant defiance was, since it was not the object of the defence to deny this point. Oh, Dorcas. Mrs Cavendish, of course, could not be called upon to give evidence against her husband. After various questions on other matters, Mr Phillips asked... Oh, and then Mr Phillips needs to speak Oh, so we need another lawyer voice. You got another lawyer voice, David. Lawyer number two. It says he, like, dabbed his brow after he sat down. So I feel like he feels a little bit out of his depth, as most state prosecutors normally are, you, because they're um, the ones on the state dime, not the private dime. I am giving you a punctuation. One. Oh, but, no. Like, so, every, but no, and he's, so every time he sort of just does that sort of, like... <laughs> just imagine there's like he's like rubbing his forehead as he's doing this like, oh, right what, yeah. what what case is this again like who are you who am i what am i he's doing got a hangover here? yes <laughs> <laughs> he's got a really bad hangover that's yeah it. okay and he's, he's an exasperated oh, oh, oh. hungover I've got a really high-profile case, but I ended up in freedom. Imagine an overstretched civil servant. That's what we want. Okay, okay, okay. (sighs) Let me just let me just see if I can settle into that. You know, just give me some. Yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That'll do it. That was just me. I don't know. <laughs> that was you just thinking, going, I've got too many characters on the go. I can't keep up. <sighs> in in the month of June, la- oh. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember a parcel arriving for Mr. Lawrence Cavendish from Parkson's? It's <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> like, guys. <laughs> Dorcas shook her head. I don't, I don't remember, sir. It may have done, but but Mr. Lawrence was away from home part of June. In the event of a parcel arriving for him whilst he was away, what would be done with it? It, it would either be put in his room or, or sent on after him. By you. Uh, n- um, no, sir, I-, I should leave it on the hall table. It would be Miss Howard who would attend to anything like that. Evelyn Howard was called, and after being examined on other points, was questioned as to the parcel. Don't remember. Lots of parcels come. Can't remember one special one. You, you-, you do not know if it was sent after Mr Lawrence Cavendish to... Wales, or whether it was put in his room. (laughs) Don't think it was sent after him. Should have remembered if it was. Supposing a parcel arrived addressed to Mr Lawrence Cavendish and afterwards it disappeared. (sighs) Should you remark its absence? (laughs) No, don't think so. I should think someone had taken charge of it. I believe Miss Howard 
that it was you who found this sheet of brown paper? He held up the same dusty piece which Poirot and I had examined in the morning room at Stiles. Yes, I did. How did you come to look for it? The Belgian detective who was employed on the case asked me to search for it. Where did you eventually discover it? On top of... of... a wardrobe. On top of the prisoner's wardrobe? I... I believe so. Did you not find it yourself? <sighs> yes. Then you must know where you found it. Yes, it was on the prisoner's wardrobe. That is better. Oh. An assistant from Parkson's theatrical costumers testified that on June 29th, they had supplied a black beard to Mr. L. Cavendish as requested. It was ordered by letter and a postal order was enclosed. No, they had not kept the letter. All transactions were entered in their books. They had sent the beard, as directed, to L. Cavendish Esquire, Styles Court. Sir Ernest Heavyweather rose ponderously. Where was the letter written from? <laughs> and then, I'm guessing this is the assistant from Parkinson's. I mean, this is the costumer. Could the you costume. make... Yeah, could, could we make costumer. him... Could we make him a proper, like, West End Wendy? Can we make him really fabulous? No, he's just, the uh, just from just style. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is his moment <laughs> in the spotlight. He is uh, waiting to get out of the wardrobe and this into is as close the sun. as he ever got to the West End. <laughs> yes, <laughs> wardrobe, this is his moment on stage. He is on stage in front of an audience right now, and he is milking it. <laughs> I imagine he's got like a feather boa yes. from his own store. He's got pearls. Yeah. <laughs> to be clutched at a moment's notice. Yes. <laughs> Where was the letter written from? From Styles Court. The same address to which you sent the parcel? Yes. And the letter came from there? Yes. <laughs> what am he I can doing? sing a few lines if he wants. He'd be like, yeah. yes. <laughs> it's hard, it? He's the sort of person that would listen to this and go, there's not enough music. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the dance break? Where's the passion? Where's the love? Like a beast of prey, heavy weather fell upon him. How do you know? I, 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 I don't understand. How do you know that letter came from Styles? Did you notice the postmark? Uh, no, uh, but... Ah, uh, uh, you did not notice the postmark. <laughs> and yet you affirmed so confidently that it came from Styles. It might, in fact, have been any postmark. Y yes. In fact, the letter, though written on stamped notepaper, might have been posted from anywhere. From Wales, 
for instance? The witness admitted that such might be the case, and Sir Ernest signified that he was satisfied. Elizabeth Wells, second housemaid at Stiles, stated that after she had gone to bed, she remembered that she had bolted the front door, instead of leaving it on the latch, as Mr Inglethorpe had requested. She had, accordingly, gone downstairs again to rectify the error. Hearing a slight noise in the west wing, she had peeped along the passage and had seen Mr John Cavendish knocking at Mrs Inglethorpe's door. Sir Ernest Heavyweather made short work of her, and under his unmerciful bullying she contradicted herself hopelessly, and Sir Ernest sat down again with a satisfied smile on his face. With the evidence of Annie as to the candle grease on the floor, and as to seeing the prisoner take the coffee into the boudoir, the proceedings were adjourned until the following day. As we went home, Mary Cavendish spoke bitterly against the prosecuting counsel. That hateful man! What a net he's drawn around my poor John! How he twisted every little fact until he made it seem what it wasn't! Well, I said consolingly, it will be the other way about tomorrow. Yes, she said meditatively, then suddenly dropped her voice. Mr. Hastings, you do not think, surely, it could not have been Lawrence. Oh, no, that could not be. But I myself was puzzled, and as soon as I was alone with Poirot, I asked him what he thought Sir Ernest was driving at. Ah, said Poirot, appreciatively, he is a clever man, that Sir Ernest. Hmm? Do you think he believes Lawrence guilty? I do not think he believes or cares anything. No, what he is trying for is to create such confusion in the minds of the jury that they are divided in their opinion as to which brother did it. Hmm? He is endeavouring to make out that there is quite as much evidence against Lawrence as against John, and I am not at all sure that he will not succeed. Detective Inspector Jap was the first witness called when the trial was reopened, and gave his evidence succinctly and briefly. After relating to earlier events, he proceeded. Acting on information received, Superintendent Summerhay and myself searched the prisoner's room during his temporary absence from the house. In his chest of drawers hidden beneath some underclothing, we found first a pair of gold-rimmed pince-nez, similar to those worn by Mr. Inglethorpe. These were exhibited. Secondly, this file. The file was that already recognised by the chemist's assistant, a tiny bottle of blue glass containing a few grains of the white crystalline powder and labelled strychnine hydrochloride poison. The fresh piece of evidence discovered by the detective since the police court proceedings was a long, almost new piece of blotting paper. It had been found in Mrs. Inglethorpe's checkbook, and on being reversed at a mirror, showed clearly the words, Everything of which I die possessed, I leave to my beloved husband, Alfred Ing. This placed beyond question the fact that the destroyed will had been in favour of the deceased lady's husband. Jap then produced the charred fragment of paper recovered from the grate, 
and this, with the discovery of the beard in the attic, completed the evidence. But Sir Ernest's cross-examination was yet to come. What day was it when you searched the prisoner's room? Ah, uh, Tuesday, the 24th of July. Exactly a week after the tragedy? Yes. You found these two objects, you say, in the chest of drawers? Was the drawer unlocked? Yes. Does it not strike you as unlikely that a man who had committed a crime should keep the evidence of it in an unlocked drawer for anyone to find? He might have stowed them there in a hurry. He might have stowed them there in a hurry, and it's been a week. A week is not a hurry. You have a long time to dispense of something in a week. But you have just said it was a whole week since the crime. He would have had ample time to remove them and destroy them. Perhaps. There is no perhaps about it. Would he, or would he not, have had plenty of time to remove and destroy them? Yes. Was the pile of underclothes under which the things were hidden heavy or light? Heavy-ish. In other words, it was winter underclothing. Obviously, the prisoner would not be likely to go to that drawer. Perhaps not. Kindly answer my question. Would the prisoner in the hottest week of a hot summer be likely to go to a drawer containing winter underclothing? Yes or no? No. In that case, is it not possible that the articles in question might have been put there by a third person and that the prisoner was quite unaware of their presence? I should not think it likely. But is it possible? Yes. That is all. This is the thing with this case. Like, in order to believe that John slipped up in this way, when so many of the other things have been so detailed, like the planning has been so on point, to overlook, like, dumping evidence that links it straight to you just in your room in a drawer... It's like you have to believe he's this criminal mastermind on one hand, but then also just completely inept in another. And those things don't match. Like you yeah, could understand sure. the slip up in terms of like leaving a fingerprint or do you know what I mean? Or like a boot print or, or something like something like that that you overlook. But when it's like, yes, I use these to dress up as him and this is the vial of poison. Like those are every idiot would know to get rid of those. It's like, oh, yeah, I've just stabbed somebody. I'm going to keep the knife in my underwear drawer. No, you'd get rid of it on a pedestal. Yeah. You'd put it as far away from you as possible. For sure. Or, as probably the murderers done in this case, you'd put it in somebody else's drawer so that they get dumped with the crime instead. So it's like, it does, it does, he's very good at doing this whole, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt. You All you need to do is just sow a little bit of doubt. Let's just sow a little bit of doubt and then you get your person off. More evidence followed. Evidence as to the financial difficulties in which the prisoner had found himself at the end of July. Evidence as to his intrigue with Mrs. Rakes. Poor Mary, that must have been bitter hearing for a woman of her pride. Evelyn Howard had been right in her facts. 
though her animosity against Alfred Inglethorpe had caused her to jump to the conclusion that he was the person concerned. Ah, so so a rumour's gone round that somebody from Styles is visiting Mrs. Rake and they've all assumed it was Alfred when actually it was John. So John's the one having the affair with the father. What a scamp. Have we got proof of this? Oh, there is proof of this. Well, they're what saying is, that, yeah. They said more evidence followed, but they haven't said what the evidence is. Yeah, I don't know what the evidence is, but obviously just that a rumour was going around. Someone from Styles keeps visiting the Rakes farm and they've all just gone to the conclusion it's Alfred because they don't like him. This is probably what him and Emily were arguing about. Lawrence Cavendish was then put into the box. In a low voice, in answer to Mr Phillips questions, he denied having ordered anything from Parkson's in June. In fact, on June 29th, he had been staying away in Wales. Instantly, Sir Ernest's chin was shooting pugnaciously forward. You deny having ordered a black beard from Parkson's on June 29th? I do. Ah, in the event of anything happening to your brother, who will inherit Stiles Court? The brutality of the question called a flush to Lawrence's pale face. The judge gave vent to a faint murmur of disapprobation, and the prisoner in the dock leant forward angrily. Heavyweather cared nothing for his client's anger. Answer my question, if you please. I, I, I suppose, said Lawrence quietly, that I should. What do you mean by suppose? Your brother has no children. You would inherit it, wouldn't you? Yes. Ah, uh, that's better, said Heavyweather, <laughs> with ferocious geniality. And you'd inherit a good slice of the money too, wouldn't you? And then the judge chimes in. Oh, can you make him like? Can you make him like an X Factor judge, like Simon Cowell? Can you make him Simon Cowell? That was without a doubt the worst. Yes, singing I've ever seen. It's a no from me. Uh, yeah, yeah. We can, I guess. Very vocal fry, and it's quite Lovely. sort of matter of fact and taking your time. Really, Sir Ernest protested the judge. These questions are not relevant. Sir Ernest bowed, and having shot his arrow, proceeded. On Tuesday, the 17th of July, you went, I believe, with another guest to visit the dispensary at the Red Cross Hospital in Tadminster. Yes. Did you, while you happened to be alone for a few seconds, unlock the poison cupboard and examine some of the bottles? I, I I, may have done so. I put it to you that you did so. Yes. Sir Ernest fairly shot the next question at him. Did you examine one bottle in particular? No, I, I do not think so. Be careful, Mr Cavendish. I am referring to the little bottle of hydrochloride of strychnine. Lawrence was turning a sickly greenish colour. No, no, I'm sure I didn't. 
then how do you account for the fact that you left the unmistakable impress of your fingerprints on it? The bullying manner was highly efficacious with a nervous disposition. I, I, I suppose I must have taken up the bottle. I suppose so too. Did you extract any of the contents of the bottle? Certainly not. Then why did you take it up? I once studied to be a doctor. Such things naturally interest me. Ah, so poisons naturally interest you, do they? Still, you waited to be alone before gratifying that interest of yours. I'm really enjoying that in that dialogue there are speech marks around some of the words. Interest yeah, naturally. it's literally like, so poisons naturally interest you, do they? And gratifying that interest of yours. <laughs> Imagine if someone did that in court anyway. It's like yeah. so inappropriate. Well, that was pure chance. If the others had been there, I should have done just the same. Still, as it happens, the others were not there. Well, no, but in fact, during the whole afternoon, you were only alone for a couple of minutes. And it happened, I say, it happened to be during those two minutes that you displayed your natural interest <laughs> in hydrochloride of strychnine. <laughs> Lawrence stammered pitiably. I, 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 with a satisfied and expressive countenance, Sir Ernest observed, I have nothing more to ask you, Mr. Cavendish. <laughs> this bit of... <laughs> oh, dear. <clears throat> this bit of cross-examination had caused great excitement in court. The heads of the many fashionably attired women present were busily laid together, and their whispers became so loud that the judge angrily threatened to have the court cleared if there was not immediate silence. There was a little more evidence. The handwriting experts were called upon for their opinion of the signature of Alfred Inglethorpe in the chemist's poison register. They all declared unanimously that it was certainly not his handwriting, and gave it as their view that it might be that of the prisoner disguised. Cross-examined, they admitted that it might be the prisoner's handwriting cleverly counterfeited. Sir Ernest Heavyweather's speech in opening the case for the defence was not a long one, but it was backed by the full force of his emphatic manner. Never, he said, in the course of his long experience had he known a charge of murder rest on slighter evidence. Not only was it entirely circumstantial, but the greater part of it was practically unproved. Let them take the testimony they had heard and sift it impartially. The strychnine had been found in a drawer in the prisoner's room. That drawer was an unlocked one as he had pointed out, and he submitted that there was no evidence to prove that it was the prisoner who had concealed the poison there. It was, in fact, a wicked and malicious attempt on the part of some third person to fix the crime on the prisoner. The prosecution had been unable to produce a shred of evidence in support of their contention that it was the prisoner who ordered the black beard from Parkson's. 
The quarrel which had taken place between prisoner and his stepmother was freely admitted, but both it and his financial embarrassments had been grossly exaggerated. His learned friend, Sir Ernest nodded carelessly at Mr. Phillips, had stated that if the prisoner were an innocent man, he would have come forward at the inquest to display that it was he and not Mr. Inglethorpe who had been the participator in the quarrel. He thought the facts had been misrepresented. What had actually occurred was this. The prisoner, returning to the house on Tuesday evening, had been authoritatively told that there had been a violent quarrel between Mr. and Mrs. Inglethorpe. No suspicion had entered the prisoner's head that anyone could possibly have mistaken his voice for that of Mr. Inglethorpe. He naturally concluded that his stepmother had had two quarrels. The prosecution averred that on Monday, July 16th, the prisoner had entered the chemist's shop in the village disguised as Mr. Inglethorpe. The prisoner, on the contrary, was at that time at a lonely spot called Marston's Spinney, where he had been summoned by an anonymous note, couched in blackmailing terms and threatening to reveal certain matters to his wife unless he complied with its demands. The prisoner had, accordingly, gone to the appointed spot, and after waiting there vainly for half an hour, had returned home. Unfortunately, he had met with no one on the way there or back who could vouch for the truth of his story, but luckily he had kept the note, and it would be produced as evidence. So somebody is not only dressed up as Alfred, but then also blackmailed John to go to a secluded spot so that they could yeah, pin it on John. Somewhere. Yeah. So it is, it's this layered thing. Somebody's literally gone, I'm going to pin it on yeah. Alfred, but then make it look like John's the one pinning it on Alfred when actually it's like, it's just, it's it, diabolical. This person's a mastermind. Literally. Because as I said before, like most people don't leave evidence like that they know ties them directly to the crime, like mm-hmm. the bottle in the drawer. But, you know, a fingerprint here or a footprint there. Obviously, Lawrence accidentally left the fingerprint on a bottle. But now I'm like trying to work out if that was just his natural interest or if he's involved. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not confident or brave enough to accuse anybody. But it now seems seems like such of a mastermind operation that maybe the fingerprint was put there on purpose to throw somebody off the thing and then your head goes into a spin of conspiracies. Mm. I don't know. Or... Maybe the mastermind is Cynthia and she intentionally said to Lawrence, oh, don't go near that cupboard. It's full of poisons, knowing that he wouldn't be able to control himself. We've brought Cynthia back into the game. That is a shout. (laughs) And I'm on board with it because she's my (laughs) I thought you'd enjoy that one. Even though we've not heard it. Cynthia, she's been dangerously quiet for most of the Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's what it was. Maybe she knew that he wouldn't be the able to help himself. Horses. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they, this person does need to be somebody who completely flies under the radar, though. So I wouldn't be surprised. I honestly wouldn't be surprised at this point. I've got no idea. I've got no idea. As for the statement relating to the destruction of the will, the prisoner had formerly practised at the bar and was perfectly well aware that the will made in his favour a year before was automatically revoked by his stepmother's remarriage. He would call evidence to show who did destroy the will, and it was possible that that might open up quite a new view of the case. Finally, he would point out to the jury that there was evidence against other people besides John Cavendish. 
he would direct their attention to the fact that the evidence against Mr. Lawrence Cavendish was quite as strong, if not stronger, than that against his brother. He would now call the prisoner. John acquitted himself well in the witness box. Under Sir Ernest's skilful handling, he told his tale credibly and well. The anonymous note received by him was produced and handed to the jury to examine. The readiness with which he admitted his financial difficulties and the disagreement with his stepmother lent value to his denials. At the close of his examination, he paused and said, I should like to make one thing clear. I utterly reject and disapprove of Sir Ernest Everyweather's insinuations against my brother. My brother, I am convinced, had no more to do with the crime than I have. Sir Ernest merely smiled and noted with a sharp eye that John's protest had produced a very favourable impression on the jury. Then the cross-examination began. I understand you say that it never entered your head that the witnesses for the inquest could possibly have mistaken your voice for that of Mr. Inglethorpe. Is not that very surprising? No, I don't think so. I was told there'd been a quarrel between my mother and Mr. Inglethorpe, and it never occurred to me that such was not really the case. Not when the servant... uh, Dorcas repeated certain fragments of the conversation, (laughs) fragments which you must have recognised. I did not recognise them. Your memory must be unusually short. (laughs) No, but we were both angry and and I think said more than we meant. I paid very little attention to my mother's actual words. Mr. Phillips' incredulous sniff was a triumph of forensic skill. He passed on to the subject of the note. You have produced this note very opportunely. Tell me, is there nothing familiar about the handwriting of it? Not that I know of. Do you not think that it bears a marked resemblance to your own handwriting? Carelessly disguised? No, I don't think so. I put it to you that it's your own handwriting. No, I put it to you that... Anxious to prove an alibi, you conceived the idea of a fictitious and rather incredible appointment and wrote this note yourself in order to bear out your statement. No! Is it not a fact that at the time you claim to have been waiting about a solitary and unfrequented spot, you were really in the chemist shop in Style St. Mary where you, pre- to, where you purchased strychnine in the name of Alfred Inglethorpe? No, that is a lie. I put it to you. Wearing a suit of Mr. Inglethorpe's clothes, with a black beard trimmed to resemble his, you were there and signed the register in his name. Mm. That is absolutely untrue. Then I will leave the remarkable similarity of handwriting between the note, the register, and your own to the consideration of the jury. 
said Mr. Phillips, and sat down with the air of a man who had done his duty, but who was nevertheless horrified by such deliberate perjury. (laughs) After this, as it was growing late, the case was adjourned till Monday. Poirot, I noticed, was looking profoundly discouraged. He had that little frown between his eyes that I knew so well. What is it, Poirot? I inquired. Ah, mon ami, things are going badly, badly. In spite of myself, my heart gave a leap of relief. Evidently, there was a likelihood of John Cavendish being acquitted. When we reached the house, my little friend waved aside Mary's offer of tea. No, thank you, madame. I will mount to my room. I followed him. Still frowning, he went across to the desk and took out a small pack of patience cards. Then he drew up a chair to the table and, to my utter amazement, began solemnly to build card houses. My jaw dropped involuntarily, and he said at once, No, mon ami, I am not in my second childhood. I steady my nerves, that is all. This employment requires precision of the fingers. With precision of the fingers goes precision of the brain. And never have I needed that more than now. What is the trouble? I asked. With a great thump on the table, Poirot demolished his carefully built-up edifice. It is this, mon ami, that I can build card houses seven stories high, but I cannot thump. Find thump. That last link of which I spoke to you. I could not quite tell what to say, so I held my peace, and he began slowly building up the cards again, speaking in jerks as he did so. It is done, so, uh, by placing one card on another with mathematical precision. Uh, I watched the cardhouse rising under his hand, story by story. He never hesitated or faltered. It was really almost like a conjuring trick. What a steady hand you've got, I remarked. I believe I've only seen your hand shake once. On an occasion when I was enraged, without doubt, observed Poirot, with great placidity. Yes, indeed, you were in a towering rage, do you remember? It was when you discovered that the lock of the dispatch case in Mrs. Inglethorpe's bedroom had been forced. You stood by the mantelpiece, twiddling the things on it in your usual fashion, and your hand shook like a leaf. I must say... But I stopped suddenly. For Poirot, uttering a hoarse and inarticulate cry, again annihilated his masterpiece of cards, and putting his hands over his eyes, swayed backwards and forwards apparently suffering the keenest (laughs) agony. This is almost what a child with autism who's overwhelmed does. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like he's reacting like somebody who's having like an attack of some sort. Overstimulation. We know that he's quite OCD, you know. Oh, take that brooch off. I need to pin it back on again because it's not straight. Or do you mean everything needs to be in its place and it needs to be accounted for and it needs to be, yeah. And it's the same with like Monk and like Sherlock Holmes and all these people. They all have yeah. these little peculiarities about like they like things in order. And it's almost like that's what they like about cases. There's been an action of disorder and I'm going to work it out and put it back into order. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Good heavens, Poirot, 
I cried. What is the matter? Are you taken ill? No, no, he gasped. It is, it is, that I have an idea, huh? Oh, I exclaimed, much relieved. One of your little ideas? Ah, ma foi, non, replied Poirot frankly. This time it is an idea gigantic, stupendous, and you, you, my friend, have given it to me, huh? Suddenly clasping me in his arms, he kissed me warmly on both cheeks, and before I recovered from my surprise, ran headlong from the room. Mary Cavendish entered at that moment. What is the matter with Monsieur Poirot? He rushed past me, crying out, A, a garage! For the love of heaven, direct me to a garage, madam. And before I could answer, <laughs> he dashed out into the street. Amazing. I hurried to the window. True enough, there he was, tearing down the street, hatless and gesticulating as he went. Oh. I turned to Mary with a gesture of despair. He'll be stopped by a policeman in another minute. There he goes round the corner. Our eyes met, and we stared helplessly at one another. What can be the matter? I shook my head. I don't know. He was building card houses, when suddenly he said he had an idea and rushed off as you saw. Well said Mary. I expect he'll be back before dinner. But night fell and Poirot had not returned. End of chapter. He just got arrested for being hatless. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your hat, sir? Put it on and you'll be arrested in a minute. Yeah. Not I mean, hat in I know that people in this time and before this were very funny about hats. If you were like out in public without a hat, you were like not dressed. <laughs> you were like uncivilized as far as they were concerned. So he's looking for a garage. So is there some kind of clue? Yeah, linked to a car. The only mentions of a car I can remember up till now is they were basically saying, well, it was Hastings saying, oh, well, Miss Howard could have done it. It's only a 15-minute car ride away. Not that she did, because obviously she had the alibi at the hospital. But that's the only mention of a, a car on this night that I can actually think Unless of. Unless it's stuff kept in a garage, I don't know. Maybe. Because it was the, the jimmying of days. the bag and him standing by the mantelpiece... That's what's kind of triggered his memory. Yeah, or, unless there's or, a tool or. that they use to 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 open the, the, the to break the lock. Maybe he's looking for something. A, a garage in in the 1910s would still be the same as what we consider a garage today, right? That's not some kind of. I imagine it'd be an outhouse. But it would be for, for fixing cars, right? That would be. Yeah. It's, it's not some other thing that we're. You could probably get, you could probably keep car a carriage in there as well if you had a horse. Attached garages popped up occasionally in the 1920s, but really came into full flower a decade later. So maybe he's looking for a garage, but maybe like a car garage is in a mechanic. Selling. Rather yeah, than, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than the actual garage at Styles. There might not be an actual garage. Probably an American Styles. thing that came over. Yeah, well, that's what it was saying. That. Yeah, it, yeah, it was saying the garages were that that thing I just read about them becoming popular a decade later. It was was about America, not about England. So yeah, he must be looking for a car mechanics or something. But yeah, I mean, the case was very interesting. Obviously, a lot of evidence there against John, probably more than we kind of thought there was right at the start. Because as you say, we all kind of disregarded him quite early on as as the murderer. But there does seem to be a lot of motive. There seems to be quite a lot of 
evidence against him. But as I say, it, it, the problem with this case is, is we know that this murder is clever enough to plant stuff. So it's now trying to weed out like what is planted evidence and what is real evidence. That's that's the real struggle here that the authorities have to determine. Mm. It's like what's actually a murderer slipping up and what's something that someone's done intentionally. Yeah, it's impossible to, to, to say. Which, again, well, he talks about the last link. Well, the last link has to be something that, in, that can't be mimicked or created it's literally nope this puts you yeah not at the scene either because also you don't need to be at the scene to be the murder in this one that's what's tricky yeah you have to or be at the scene at some point but you know or, or even something that you can't necessarily magic away you can only cover up so for instance like if you use the vehicle getting rid of a vehicle is harder than getting rid of a vial because there's sure. you know documents like you know a driver's license, insurance, like there'll be there'll be documents showing that you own that car up to a certain point or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So it's like it kind of it, it's kind of locked to you more than yeah. a pair of glasses or a beard. To me, so it's going to be. I, I, I've got no idea where Poro is going with this at all, but I, I'm, I'm assuming that's meant to be the point because otherwise it'd be easy and there'd be less intrigue. Yeah. So we're still none the wiser. Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely though. I think having kind of put that little thing together about, I haven't necessarily got on her motive, but I do think that Cynthia's gonna come back into this at some point because I've always, I feel like she is just a vehicle to the poison cupboard in the distillery. But if the poison cupboard in the distillery isn't the murder weapon, she has no other reason of being in the story. And I feel like that's kind of like not enough. I feel like she should be. There should be more of a reason for her to be there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She does have a motive because it said right at the beginning that she was, because she was kind of like there as the, as the ward and she wasn't really a member of the family, but she'd been taken in. Um, Mrs. Inglethorpe treated her like I've given you all of the nice things that you have. And she was mm-hmm. resentful of that. That was definitely mentioned in the first chapter where we were introduced to her. So but you've got to think of it though, where she knows that Evie and John are the only two people in styles that she feels like her. So for her to murder Emily and then pin it on John, that seems to be mm. a bit odd. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So that's why I feel like the motive hasn't quite been unearthed yet. But I feel Cynthia- like the really obvious ones are the will or like, you know, it's there could be something pertaining to this new will that makes. But say, it... but say Cynthia, Cynthia gets on with Mary quite well, doesn't she? No, she if was Cin- saying that Mary hated her. But does she like Mary? Uh, she... she didn't really say anything about that. She just said, "Well, Mary hates me, and I'm probably going to have to leave Styles because when John and Mary take over Styles, they're not going to want me around." Oh, okay. That's why she started crying. Remember to Hastings. Uh- yeah, so I'm not sure. That, but I'm that could sure. be completely I, I, untrue because when Mary brought when he brought up Cynthia to Mary, Mary was like, Oh, you don't have to advocate for her, I'm leaving. To me, like it was almost like she didn't seem to say like, Oh no, I can't stand her or anything. She was just like, Oh, it, like I don't know why we're talking about this. It's irrelevant because I'm going anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like she so yeah. we didn't verify that that was actually the case, that there was this beef coming from Mary towards Cynthia. Yeah, sure. So, oh, I don't know. I know, I know. I we're, still, feeling... we're still none the wiser. You could still probably make a case for. You probably rule out John now. You still, you still he... make a case for Lawrence. You still make a kind of a case for Mary and sort of Cynthia. But they're all sort of, sort of. There's def like 
I don't know. There's not one that you go, well, that's a definite. They're all yeah. ones that I've got a lot of doubts about. So we're going to hear about some other contextual evidence that we weren't aware of before. Oh, didn't you know that, by the way, they did this to that person? You go, oh, well, that would have been no- helpful to know in the first thing. But obviously, yeah. But authors I mean, keeping stuff by their chest as well, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know <laughs> I have I have Lawrence, but I do feel like, because it's like certain people have been had these personality traits to make you lean towards them. So obviously Dr. Baustein being an expert on poisons and then poison being the weapon, you went, well, he might be involved because he like, you know, he's involved in poisons. And I think that's the same thing was what's happened here with, with Lawrence, where as a doctor or like as a bit of a weird person, because it even says he's a bit weird in the book, you know, you might be kind of quite morbidly interested in things that are toxic and, looking at what they have in the dispensary or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It, you'd probably, I, I could totally understand wanting to just have a look at what's in there. But then it's like other people would know that about him in the house. They would know that he wouldn't be able to help himself or resist it. So I I don't know. I really don't know. I just have a feeling that like the bit at the start where they were like, oh, poison is a woman's weapon. I just wonder if that's going to end up being the case and it's going to be one of the women. Dorcas. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Could be. Evil genius behind a meek. Could a you imagine? If you think that you've got the answer, then keep it to yourself. <laughs> but if you've got any thoughts or opinions on this chapter, you can message us on thelazybookclub at gmail.com. Or do the very same on Twitter. And at lazybookclub.com. Pod. Yeah, Instagram's got the same handle. You know that by now. At Lazy Book Club Pod. We're also on Patreon now, and for the low fee of $3 a month, you get to see the video of us recording and you get to see all of Josh's amazing Donald Trump hand gestures and pouty lips. So you can follow us there, patreon.com forward slash Lazy Book Club Pod as well. Do you want to tell us the chapter title for the next chapter, Josh? I mean, yeah, not giving much away, but chapter 12 is entitled The Last Link. I think the thing that That excites me most about that chapter title and the fact it's chapter 12 is that I'm going to be put out of my misery soon and finally find out who did this We've only got two chapters left. Eight chapters left. I know. I'm (laughs) really looking forward to finding out. So. So there we go. The last link. We can find out what's going on with the garage and how it's relevant to the story. So we'll find that out next week and we'll see you then. Bye. Yeah, bye.